Let's go to the Lord once more and ask for his help in the hearing of his word. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would indeed take our, our ears and make them hear. That you would take our eyes and make them see. You would take our wills and conform them to yours. That you would take our, our hands which cling to idols and sins, Lord, they you would, you would open them, pry them open if necessary. And God, that you would take, take it from us. That you, that you give us, that you give us hearts that, that love to hear the call to repent, because we know that it is an invitation to escape the wrath to come, and to escape the lies and the deceitfulness of sin and and idols, and it is an invitation to draw near to our Heavenly Father, the God of glory, the King of the ages, you who dwell in unapproachable light, that you would call us to know you and love you and see you and delight in you, and to be under your mercy forevermore rather than under your wrath. So God, might you use your word today to separate Lord, would you help those who know you to see and to turn from anything that might be hindering their their walk and to love you all the more. And for those who do not, that you would give them hearts that would hate their sin and love Jesus who would save them from it. Help us wherever we are in that journey. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. It'll be page 858 of those Bibles that are provided for you there. 858. Luke chapter 3. Well, on, uh, in March of last year, 2016, CBS Sunday Morning did an interview with uh, Pastor Joel Osteen. He was uh, interviewed by Tracy Smith. For those of you who aren't familiar with Joel Osteen, he's a pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, which is a, um, yeah, a very, very large gathering of people. Um, during that interview, Osteen was asked about his success and about um, yeah, what it's like for him to ha- now become known as America's pastor. Specifically, he was asked what makes his message so appealing to so many. And he said this. He said, you know, it, my message, is not hellfire and brimstone. I say most people are beaten down enough by life. They already feel guilty enough. They know they're not doing what they should. They know they're not raising their kids as they should. We can all find reasons for that. So I want them to come to to Lakewood and to our meetings and be lifted up to say, you know what, I may not be perfect, but I'm I'm moving forward, I'm doing better, and I think that motivates you to do better. Elsewhere he said in similar fashion, "I, I want them, people who come, to be lifted up. I want them to know that God is good, that they can come forward and they can break an addiction and that they can become who God's created them to be. I would rather tell them that 
we can be better fathers and that we can let go of the past. I deal with it in an overcoming way. There's a camp that's more hellfire, but that's just not me. Over the years, I've listened to a lot of Joel Osteen messages. One of the reasons I do that is because I do talk about him publicly from time to time um, and, and, and speak against his, his teaching and his ministry. And the reason is because is not because everything that Joel Osteen says is untrue. The reason is because there are certainly things that Joel Osteen says that are untrue. But there are some very, very important things that Joel Osteen will not say that are true. And that a half-truth ends up being no truth in the end. And it's a very, very dangerous thing. Now listen, I grew up as somebody who, I didn't like church. I particularly didn't like Baptists because of the red-faced hellfire and brimstone stuff that, that irritated me as a non-Christian. But I think we need to be very careful when we think about the idea of warnings in the Bible and about the reality of a coming judgment and about the responsibility of a pastor or anybody who would follow Jesus to help people who are perishing in their sin to understand that there is indeed a judgment that is coming and that the only way to escape it is to turn from their sin and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That message of repentance is the heart of of the message that we hear this morning from John the Baptist in the Gospel of Luke. If you've been with us in this series, in the early years, the first two chapters, we've seen Jesus promised. We've seen, well, we saw uh, the promise of John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And then we saw the Messiah, Jesus. Both of them were born, just as God had promised. We saw Jesus' early years and him growing up. We saw a couple scenes. We dealt with that last week. And now in the Gospel of Luke, we're moving into a, a second section that goes from chapter 3 through 4, where we title it the, the Divine Endorsement, where we're going to see that, that Jesus is put on display as indeed being the Messiah. We're going to see this morning that the forerunner says, He is the one. We're going to see the Father from heaven say, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. We're going to see Jesus resisting Satan's temptations in weeks to come. Proving himself to be indeed the Savior and the Messiah of the world. But John, as he comes as the forerunner, his first message out of the gate for everybody to receive Jesus rightly is to understand that there is a tidal wave of judgment that is about to fall on the world and that you must prepare for it. And there's only one way to do that, and that is to repent. And to turn unto Jesus. So our big idea this morning is this. That salvation comes to those who turn from their sin. And turn to Jesus with lives that bear fruit of holiness. Salvation comes to those who turn from sin. And turn to Jesus with lives that bear fruit of, of holiness. Now... It, if you're, if you're a regular here, you know I normally have points, um, and they often start with the same letter. Well, don't have that this morning. What we're going to do is we're just going to walk through this text and observe it, kind of scene by scene, and watch it unfold and take some observations from the message that we see here. 
from Luke about John, who is the forerunner of the Messiah. We're going to begin here with John's calling in verses 1 and 2. So I'll read it for us. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, uh, tetrarch of the region of Eteria and Traconicus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, Luke begins here with uh, listing seven rulers, okay? This is around the, the year 29 A.D., and he lists them from having the most authority, Caesar, who was a cruel man here, down through the tetrarchs. A tetrarch is when um, somebody would divide up their government into to four uh, rulers, so he lists those four rulers here, and then he gives these, uh, these local religious high, high priests of the day. Now, the, the, the scene is that Israel, the nation of Israel, is in the land, but they're ruled by this oppressive Roman government. They have a freedom of religion as long as they give their political allegiance to, to Caesar, and they pay their taxes, and they follow the laws, and all those, those sorts of things. Well, it's in that day that the word of God came to John in the wilderness, it says here. In this, in this time, in this... this this world ruled by, by heathens, heaven is going to speak. It speaks to John, this one who has been set apart from the womb for a work. And here he receives his orders. And we don't get much of it. We just had that the, the, the word came to John. And God speaks to him and sends him to speak on his behalf and to proclaim a message that the time for Messiah has arrived. He's come. Prepare for him. Now before we look at John's message, I just want to make two important observations. The first one is, is this, that the, one of the evidences that the, that, that the Gospels are true here is how Luke roots all these events in history. I mean, he gives you a bunch of people so that you can find this in history books to know when this, this happened. He was meticulous in, in doing that. So I just want to be really clear, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, this is not a, a fairy tale. These are real events that happened in history that God in his mercy had preserved for us to read and to learn about today. If you have more questions about that, we're happy to talk with you about it here. The second thing I want you to, to, to note is this. I think it's really important, and I almost just breezed over this in my preparation, but, but I thought about the, just the political climate into which <laughs> this this forerunner, the prophet, John, steps, and the Messiah, Jesus, comes. There's such complexity here of political authorities all over the places. There's all kinds of alliances and all these things. And any earthly king who would want to, to bring any kind of word would have to do so very carefully. They would need to navigate and go through all the right channels and be very careful that they don't offend any of the earthly rulers because it could cost them their life. I think it's just really important to notice that God just doesn't care about any of that. He is totally unimpressed with all kinds of authority that is on earth. 
Now, he sets up the structures, and that is, that is very true, but he is the king of kings. And he just initiates his plan, and he asks no one for permission or assistance. He doesn't run it by Caesar. He just says, it's time for what I'm going to do to come to pass, and it doesn't really matter what any of the other kings think about it. Because God answers to no one. I just think it's really important to note that, especially with events that are coming up this week. Next thing to notice here is, is John's message. Verse 3, he says, John, he went into all the region around the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written, the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So John begins this prophecy tour, you might call it, where he's going around in all these, these regions here. This is west of of the, the northern part of the Dead Sea. That's why those maps in your Bible are helpful sometimes. You can, you can see where this is taking place. John is touring around out there. This is what you might know is the, uh, in the region where the, the, the Qumran community is. You heard that before? It's where the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered out there. So he's out in, in this region here, which extended then down to the, the north of the, the Jordan Valley. And as he's going, he has, he has a message, and this is a summary of it. You can see more of it in some of the other Gospels, but this is what Luke gives for us here. And I just want to notice a few things about his message, okay? The first thing I think it's important to, to, to notice is that his message is illustrated by baptism. His message is illustrated by, by baptism. It, it says there, he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the word Baptism or baptize shows up seven times here in chapter 3. It's a significant thing. Uh, It's so significant to John that he's going to later be called John the Baptist. So sorry to let you down. He wasn't actually a Southern Baptist, okay? He was just just the Baptist. He was the original, okay? Um, (laughs) But that's why Baptists are called Baptists, because there's something that that distinguishes us from, from other denominations who... Who, who love Jesus, and that's what we think about baptism. We think baptism is for people who are Christians, who have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ, that you publicly make a profession of, now I'm with Jesus. We have a couple of those coming up in, in, in a few weeks, so praise God for that. But, but baptism, what it is, it's, it's a public way of aligning, here in this day, it was a public way of aligning with, with John and with his message. You're going to come out and do something publicly that's going to say, I'm with that guy and what he's saying about what's about to happen. Now, why would John do this, this baptism thing? Because when you read through the New Testament, baptism is, is everywhere. It shows up 49 times in the Gospels, 27 times in Acts, which Luke also wrote, and then 17 times in the rest of the New Testament. So, so this idea of baptism is really prevalent in the New Testament, but the word doesn't show up anywhere in the Old Testament at least not the way it's, it's translated for us, the word dip or immerse shows up. But there's really only one scene in the Old Testament where we see somebody you might call getting baptized, even though there's nobody actually doing the baptism. Anybody remember what that is? 
Naaman, yeah. So you had Naaman, who was this commander of the Syrian army in 2 Kings chapter 5, where he gets struck with leprosy, and he goes to the God of, of Israel, and uh, Elisha tells him, um, you want to be healed? Go out into the Jordan River and, and dip yourself seven times. And you remember Naaman's like, don't we have better rivers back home? And he's like, we ain't, no, you want in this one. Because what he's doing is saying, I'm going to humbly submit to this God who's of, um, the God of Israel. Well, evidently, that became a practice. So it's not in the law, but it was something in tradition where, where non, non-Jews would, would convert to worship the true God of Israel. And when they did, one of the things that they would do is that they would either come to the Jordan River and be immersed there, or they would go to the mikvahs, which, was, uh, which are baths that are located either at synagogues or there at the temple, and they would come in and they would, they would be dipped in that as well as a symbol of, of bowing down to the God of Israel. That they're aligning with him and then the water was a picture of, of cleansing. Uh, Jewish people were, were not baptized in this way. Um, but they would go to those same mikvahs as a form of washing. Um, and they would go in oftentimes and they would go in and they would, they would immerse themselves as a symbol of, of cleansing. Now... First of all, I went through all of that because I always get the question, where did baptism come from because it's not in the Old Testament, so there you go. But I think it's also important to notice what John is doing here. John is not holding these meetings at the temple. He's calling the nation of Israel to come out away from the corrupted system. Don't jump into those mikvahs at the temple and the corrupted religious system of the day that is missing the marks of the the truth that God has given, but rather come out from it. Come out from it, out to him, and align with the one who is going to fulfill all of the pictures of the Old Testament. So John's message here is illustrated by baptism. They're going to get dunked in the water as a picture of aligning with John's message. The next thing I want us to, to notice here about his message is that his message, John's message, is in line with the Old Testament. So John is the last Old Testament prophet. And his ministry, in a sense, is to usher in the hope of all of the other prophets. You have all these prophets who have spoken all these promises that God has given them about one day a Savior is going to come. A Messiah is going to come and rescue us. Well, John, John says, he's here, y'all. He's come. He's come. And the way he talks about that is by quoting the prophet Isaiah. So some 700 years earlier, Isaiah foretold of help that was on the way. We heard part of it read this morning from Isaiah 40. I'll just read the first verse. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. To his people, to God's people who are wearied by sin and the consequences of sin, God says, comfort, comfort, pardon for sin. Help is coming. And if you know the book of Isaiah, you'll know that chapter 40 through 66, when you read through it, you're like, oh, that's a lot better is not the right word. It feels a lot warmer than the previous chapters because all of the previous is basically about judgments come and buckle up. And then he says, oh, comfort. And 40 through 66 is all about the mercy that God promises to show to his people through Messiah. And so what John does here is he quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from chapter 40, 42, 45, 49, 52, and 57. So that section that you see there in Luke, it's a, 
it's a mixtape, as it were, of Isaiah. And it's all the kind of the highlights of everything. Do they even do mixtapes anymore? That shows, you know what I'm saying. It's, yeah, it's a playlist. Anyway, all right. But he's showing here that everything that Isaiah has said about Messiah, the one who's about to come, he's it. He's the comfort bringer. So prepare for him. Which is this next thing we need to notice about John's message. His message is one of repentance and forgiveness. So Isaiah's message and John's message is prepare the way of the Lord. Luke summarizes here in verse 3 as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The, The idea, the summary is repent of your sins so that you can by faith receive Messiah who forgives your sins. And he says here, there's, there's the voice of one who is crying in the wilderness. That's John the Baptist. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This is royal language. And we've gone over this several times. This will be the last time that we do it. But I think it's important to notice here. This is, this is royal language about how a forerunner would go in front of a king. So a king is coming to a city to see his people. And you would have somebody who would go before him and do basically road work. And he would prepare the way for the king. And John uses that imagery here to help us understand what repentance looks like. Verse 5. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. So so John applies Isaiah's description of of an overgrown road on which a, a king travels to his people. But, but they're going to be hindered from seeing the king because the road is filled with holes and hills and twisted areas and overgrown places. You see, the road here is, as it were, a metaphor for the heart where God is coming to dwell, to reign as king. Everybody's expecting the Messiah to come and to rule on a throne in Jerusalem and put down the enemies of Rome, but actually he's coming first to come and to rule in the heart of his people and put down the enemies of sin. So prepare the road, prepare the way that he may come in and rule in your heart. In John's day, there were many areas that needed to be addressed, and in this room, there are many areas that must be addressed to receive the Savior's arrival. He says here, valleys must be brought up. What does that mean, valley? What does that, what does that look like? Well, some of us are, are low with, with self-pity, with sinful anxiety, with despair, with apathy towards God's glory, with guilt because of past sin. Now, I want to say there are right ways and wrong ways for sorrow, right reasons and wrong reasons for sorrow. I just want to say that not all lowliness of spirit is sinful. There is real grief over loss and sadness over disappointment. But one of the tricks of pride is rather than getting you to think highly of yourself, is to getting you to think lowly of yourself. Because in either form, you're looking at yourself. And you are the focus rather than God. And he says here, those low things must be brought up. Mountains and hills must be brought low. Some of us are are proud and think too highly of ourselves. 
We have critical spirits where we can always so easily see the sins of others, but not so easily of ourselves. Where we're, we're self-righteous, as it were, and we think, oh, because I've done this or not done this, that I'm something. We have unteachable spirits. He says that has to come down for Messiah to come in. There's crooked ways that must be straightened. Maybe going through religious motions without real heartfelt devotion. Maybe patriotism in the name of Christianity without holiness and humility. Worldly success at the expense of eternity's pleasures. He says the crooked ways must be straightened. There must be rough places that must be leveled. Maybe you're shackled with shame or your hearts have become calloused because of unconfessed sin. And what John's saying here to to the people who are listening and to us is this. There must be preparation for seeing and believing and receiving and delighting in and obeying and walking with and communing with God. And what that is is repentance. And there's initial repentance that happens that ushers us into relationship with God, but there's an ongoing repentance that is necessary for the believer. Jesus will say elsewhere, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, repentance is a purification of the heart. That when the light of the word of God shines in and it exposes sins that hide in the dark, Rather than cover them up or excuse them away or justify them or blame it on somebody else, we say, yes, I confess. I I, I confess and we we root them out. My pride and my my gluttony and my, I'm so prone to running to other things for comfort, comfort rather than to the Lord or critical spirit or whatever it may be. We, We pull it out and say, Lord, there it is. We look to the cross and know that there Jesus paid it all. We find hope. But it's only through that that we see the Lord. Repentance is the purification of the heart. And that's the hope that he gives here in verse 6. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. When, when, when God in His mercy awakens the sinner and helps them to see their sin and gives them grace to repent, the eyes of spiritual blindedness are freed to see Jesus for who He is. He is the comfort giver that all the idols always fail to deliver on. He's the one who rescues us from sin and from wrath and from judgment. He is the giver of hope and help. John says that that waits, salvation awaits. But we've got to be really careful here to make sure that we don't understand that John is not just, he's not just calling people to another uh, religious ritual here. He's not just saying, come out and join my club. He's doing something very different. Look at, look at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowd. So he's out there, he's doing all this, and crowds are forming He said, therefore, to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, and in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, it says that Jesus, this next word that comes out, that Jesus speaks it specifically to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those are religious liberals and the religious conservatives of the day. He says here, verse 7, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John gives a warning here that judgment is coming. Hell awaits those who will not repent and receive the king. These are sobering words. They're oftentimes uncomfortable words. As, as a as a Christian, as a human, the idea, the concept of hell is, is terrifying and confusing and hard. And I think if, you, if it's not in some sense that for you, I'm not sure you're understanding it well. But the Bible teaches that there is an eternal lake of fire where those who die and do not have their sins forgiven by Jesus and Jesus alone through repenting and trusting in him, that they will, for eternity, be under an eternal conscious wrath of God. Now, that's hard news. But if it's true, it must be proclaimed. And John says it boldly here. And I think it's important to notice here that John, John isn't concerned with gathering a crowd. You, you won't find this strategy in, in many church planting manuals. This is not what they're going to tell you to do to try and get your church going. But you see, John's not trying to fill a coliseum. If you want to fill a coliseum, you itch ears. You tickle ears. You tell people what they want to say and you make them feel comfortable. That'll fill a coliseum. But John's trying to fill heaven, not a coliseum. So he tells them the truth. You see, big crowds isn't the goal for John the Baptist. He wants holy hearts. And he wants people to go to heaven to be with the Messiah. Notice here that John pulls no punches with his warning. He says, you brood of vipers. A brood means a family. You think, you think you're the family of Abraham, he says? You're the family of snakes. And who's the most famous snake? Satan. That's why Jesus says later on in John eight forty two, Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, the same crew, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. Why do you not understand? Why do you not believe what I say? It is because you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You see, Jesus spoke the full truth. These words here are aimed specifically at the Pharisees, the religious leaders, but they're applicable for all. And he, he, he warns you, he asks here, who, who warned you? He's questioning their motives. Why are you out here? 
What are you looking for? Jesus will say, why would you go out to John? Were you looking for a spectacle? Somebody who's dressed up in nice stuff? That's not what was out there, was it? Now, I want to say, say a word here about, about giving a warning like this. About the impending wrath of God. We must be wise and humble as we share the warning. And I think the only way that humility comes is by being keenly aware that this is what you and I deserve. If God were fair with us, if God were fair, everyone would be under his wrath forever. And it is only by sheer mercy that some, some would escape the wrath to come. And that, what that does is it produces the posture in a Christian's heart that is humbled by the idea of, of hell. And I just want to say we must never be deceived about what we think loving counsel is. Good news is not always easy, comfortable, affirming news. John the Baptist and Jesus come to say the house is on fire. You are not okay. Things are not okay in this world. They're not okay. Apart from Christ, you are not okay. Your neighbor is not okay. The person next to you at work is not okay. Your family member is not okay. It's not just fine. It's not not okay. There is a real eternity that awaits. It's real. And what Satan wants to do is he wants to do everything he can to numb us to meaningful, eternal sobriety. Busy ourselves with stuff and scores and stuff. Stocks and tweets and texts and posts and likes and and all. He just wants us everywhere looking at everything else so that life just goes on by and we are numb and callous to the fact that we're about to stand before a holy God and give an account for every word Jesus says. For the motive of our heart. So I want you to know it is not loving to withhold words of judgment. It is actually unloving to withhold words of judgment. This is why Jesus is so strong, and the Bible is so strong against false teachers. When you read through Jeremiah, God is furious with the false prophets who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace, he says. They, they heal the wound of my people lightly, he says. They put a band-aid on cancer. It doesn't work. Listen. The aim of the gospel is not to just make you happy. Happiness is a fruit. Joy is a fruit. But it's holiness is essential for happiness. And the lie of Satan is that you can be happy apart from holiness. That's the gospel of hell. Did God really say you should not eat the tree? He's been singing the same song ever since. Why you must be very careful to who you listen to. Because not everybody who talks to you about Jesus tells you the truth about Jesus. I encourage you to listen to what I'm saying and receive it and search the scriptures. I'm not the final authority. 
you, Delray Baptist Church, are responsible for me. If I go off the rails, you need to come after me. Help me. It is a grave sin to lie about God. And I think this is one of the great tragedies of modern evangelicalism. Is that for some reason we think that if we can just make everybody feel comfortable and feel good about themselves, that then they're going to be okay. Listen, if you're visiting with us, this is your first time, I want you to know this is not the message that we do every single Sunday. But this is why we teach through the Bible verse by verse, is because we want you to hear the whole thing that God says. This, this keeps me from the, the sins of my people-pleasing fear of man, which would love to avoid these kind of sermons. But I love you too much to avoid them. Because this is good for your soul. It's good for mine. Now John anticipates their objections here. Notice there he says, don't, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He says, don't, don't play the, the family tree card here. God, God doesn't show favoritism. Being a Jew has an advantage, the book of Romans says, because you have the law and the prophets, but it does not excuse you from responsibility to receive your Messiah. John, John says God could turn stones into, into children of Abraham. Yes. Yeah. John, John knows that they will, they will have excuses as to why they don't need to hear this message. And I just want you to know, some of you right now, it's all you can do to not get up and walk out. Because this is the most off-putting thing that you've ever heard. And I understand. Just want to encourage you as someone who used to do the same exact thing. To hear this message. That this is a message of mercy. It is our pride that puts up defenses. And that wants to push away light that exposes us. Because if this is actually true, it changes everything. Well, John here highlights the urgency and the individual responsibility of repentance. Notice verse 9. Even now, he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even now. We must know that time is almost up. Even now the, the grains of sand are slipping through the hourglass of history. Even now, precious moments given for repentance are passing away. You never get that moment again. Even now, at this very moment, the hand of justice, he says, is raised. Listen to this from Psalm 711. God is a righteous judge. A God who feels indignation every day. Have you ever thought what it's like to be a holy God who sees the world in which we live? Who sees the depths of our own hearts? It says here that he feels indignation every day. There is an everyday anger, righteous anger, that God feels toward evil. And yet, he tarries in mercy. Because he desires all to repent and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Can you sense the urgency here that John comes with? Jesus says in Matthew 24, Keep watch because you do not know the day on which your Lord will come. Even now he could come. Also notice verse 9, the individual responsibilities. There's urgency, but also individual responsibility. Verse 9, every tree, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree is responsible to bear the fruit of repentance. A tree is here used as a, as a metaphor for people and fruit as what's coming out of you. Your life, your words, your actions, your motives, your deeds, your thoughts, all that stuff. That's fruit. He says every tree, whether you're raised religious or this is your first time hearing about Jesus, every tree, whether you are moral by certain standards or immoral by all standards, every tree, he says, no matter whether you are rich or poor, smart or simple, famous or unknown, every tree, no one escapes the personal responsibility of heeding this call to repent. I think it's also important to note here that repentance can be seen. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Fruit is, it's, it's, it's evidence, right? So faith has evidence. Repentance has evidence. You see it. So, so this fruit, is, it's certainly very personal, but it is certainly never private. It is certainly from the heart, but it certainly never just stays in the heart. It shows itself in the life. This is why Jesus, in Matthew 9, when the guy, the, the paralytic guy is getting um, brought da- uh, lowered down by his buddies through the roof. I don't know if you remember, it says in, 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 in Matthew 9, it says, And when Jesus saw their faith. He saw it. How? Because of what they were doing. It's evidenced in life. You see, the repentance that rescues from the wrath to come is a a repentance that is accompanied by conviction and the altering of your life. So you are not saved by works. But you are not saved without works either. Faith without works is dead. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, by repenting of your sin and trusting in him. But if that has happened, it will show itself with fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in your life. Now, as this word's going out, the people hear it. So verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Verse 11, he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers asked him, What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, but be content with your wages. You see, John's preaching here, it stirs up an appropriate anxiety in the hearts of the hearers. So if you're not a Christian, but you're feeling some sort of anxiety this morning over these kinds of of your sins, and you feel it, I just want you to know it's actually God's grace. I remember me when I was getting convicted of my sin when I was a junior in college, and I would not sleep 
I couldn't sleep. I was haunted by my sin. That's mercy. What shall we do? What does God want? How shall we repent? Do you notice John here? How surgical he is in his applications. He addresses specific sins. He doesn't just say, get it together, y'all. He doesn't just say, you know, clean up, do better, be a good person, you're moving forward. He doesn't just say any of that. He calls out sins specifically. In this, I would say, I want to encourage you, if you're not a Christian, and you're wondering, what do I do at this moment? Well, you can even just now just close your eyes and talk to God and begin to confess your sins to him. And be specific in that. And cry out and ask for him to forgive you by the blood of Jesus. One of the things I encourage those of us who are Christians to mark our discipleship of one another, helping each other walk with Jesus, is we must learn to confess and repent of specific sins specifically. Confess and repent specific sins specifically. Generalities are not super helpful in your confessions of sin. He says, you got a lack of generosity? Then what you need to do is you need to share. you got two tunics, give one. Did you take too much money? Did you take $5 too much? Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Did you threaten or misuse your authority? No extortion, uh, extortion, no threats, no false accusations. Are you unhappy with what God has given you? He says, be content with your wages. You notice here the word brings conviction of sin and it exposes and it makes us aware And repentance, what it is, it is the forsaking of idols and sin in order to follow God. That's what repentance is here. It's that turning from. I just want to say something very important here, that repentance, repentance is costly. That's why Jesus said, you got to take up your cross and follow me. You see, because sin... Sin will cost you, I'm sorry, repentance will cost you the sins that you love. Sin will, sin, will, sin will tempt you to say, no, 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 because of fear of exposure. But repentance, it will cost you, it's at times, your reputation. There's a pride that must die. Repentance is costly. There's a fear of un of the unknown. What will happen if I tell the truth? If that's you this morning, I just want to say this to you as someone who's wrestled with that and at times been ensnared in it. Obey God and allow him to handle the consequences. He's a good father and he will always give grace to his people when they trust him. So trust him. No matter what it is, His mercy is more. Step into light. Because listen, not everybody steps in light. Not everybody steps in light. If you look at verse 18, you see an example of somebody who didn't. With many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he, Herod, locked up John in prison. And eventually we know he had him beheaded. You see, Herod is a sad illustration of someone 
whose sin was exposed by the truth, the truth of the message, but rather than allowing it to bring conviction and repentance, he hardened his heart, and he did all that he could to silence the conviction. Shut out the word. I don't want to hear it. You see, Herod had stolen another man's wife, and John publicly called him out for it, and evidently for lots of other things. And, and Herod saw this public rebuke as a political threat. Which I just want to... I just wanna... It is so difficult to repent. It's so difficult to repent. Think about it. All the reasons to not do it. You want to hold on to your pride. You want to hold on to your image. You kind of like this thing that you're holding on to, and you know how much it's going to hurt. This is why J.C. Ryle, in his book, Thoughts to Young Men, says something like this about repentance. I'm not even going to try and butcher it. Basically what he says is, do not assume that you can always repent. What that means is, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It's mercy from God if you sense Him exposing your sin. Today is the day to turn from it rather than do what Herod did. Do you do the same as Herod? Do you resist repentance? Lock up the prophet? Even put him to death? Even now, he says, the axe is raised. Well, John here... He moves to the point of his whole ministry, which we'll be looking at for the rest of the Gospel of John or of Luke. Verse 15 here. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I am coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, John here knows his place. He points to Jesus. In John 3.30 he says, He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. John will allow there to be no confusion about who it is that we ought hope in. John says, I am merely an arrow pointing to Jesus. John is is merely preparing the way for the Savior King. Which, by the way, pastors, and those of you who aspire to be pastors, this is always and this is only our job, to make much of Jesus. Make much of Jesus. Point people to Him. Don't don't photobomb Jesus. You know what I mean by that? Jesus is getting glory, and you just want to be like, and I was there. You're like, you want to do that. <laughs> Pastors, there's something in us that we, we, we want God to be glorified, but we, we, we want it to happen through us. Just be very careful. John would have none of that. John would have none of that because he would do nothing to confuse people about where salvation comes from. He would have none of the, I go to this person's church and that person's church. He sees that as very dangerous. It's God's church always. The pastors are mere mortals who will die. 
He says this, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit is the promised one who indwells the people of God, promised in the new covenant. This fire is the purifying work of the Spirit to refine and transform us into the image of Jesus. We'll have much more of that in the days ahead. But for those who will not receive the fire of the Spirit, they will receive the fire of judgment. He speaks here of a winnowing fork and the threshing floor. If you're not familiar with this image, basically the harvest would come in of, let's say, barley. You bring it into a threshing floor, which is a big stone, and it was usually on top of a hill, and you would have a winnowing fork, which is like a big wooden pitchfork, except bigger. And what you would do is you would, you would scoop in to the grain, and you would throw it up into the air, and as the wind would blow, it would blow away the chaff, the useless dead part, and the grain, the part that is, that is good, would fall down and it would remain, and that is the threshing. And that picture is often used throughout the Bible for the judgment that is to come. There is a day coming when judgment will arrive and it will sweep away all of the chaff, as it were. Those who do not believe and those who believe will remain and they will be with, with the Lord. John says Jesus is coming to do that. Well, then in verse 21. Now when all people were baptized, meaning all people who desired to be, And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Real quickly, why was Jesus baptized here? If you were wondering, why was Jesus baptized? You're not the only one. John the Baptist, it says in Matthew, he's like, I'm not doing that. He's like, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus is like, no, it's okay. We're going to do this to fulfill all righteousness, which means that Jesus was modeling for Israel, this is what a good Israelite would do. They would align with this message of the kingdom of which John is the forerunner. I'm baptized. I align into that that message about the kingdom that's coming. It's not because he had some kind of sin to repent of. In conclusion, I want us to meditate just for a moment on this last thing. The word from the Father about the Son. Do you see it there? When he was baptized and he was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. We get a glimpse here of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God Almighty who has come to rescue his people. And we see that the Father delights in in the Son. He delights in Jesus because Jesus does everything to please the Father. His entire life is aimed at obedience to bring the Father joy and glory. And Jesus will endure in that his whole life. And then he will go to a cross. And the reason he goes to a cross is because all of our lives and the life of every person who has ever lived is marked by disobedience and stealing glory. And it looks different for all of us. But Jesus came and he died on the cross to there receive the judgment for all those who would ever turn, repent from their sin, and believe upon him. And then he rose from the dead. And today he extends a message of forgiveness for all who will turn. And I want you to know this promise that awaits you. For those of you who are in Christ, or those of you who even today would come to Christ, hear this. That if you will hide from the wrath to come, 
in the place that God has provided his son. If you will flee there by faith, leaving behind your idols and your sins, leaving it behind, repenting of it, and fleeing unto Jesus, he will clothe you with his very own righteousness. And what that means is that you will be received by the Father, and one day you will hear him look at you. And he will say, not because of your righteousness, but by the righteousness of his Son, he will hear, Behold, my son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. He can say that about you if you hide in the Son by faith. Friends, the axe is poised, judgment is coming, but God in his mercy has sent a deliverer, and his name is Jesus. Let us run to him in faith. Would you pray with me?